0: This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year fight.
1: Why is it taking so long to get a screening test?
0: It is not a hoax, it is real. Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist, you're going to have to tell me. (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic to keep you informed, prepared, and calm. We are still all in this together, my friends. Right now, in the U.S., we are witnessing the extreme results of COVID fatigue, colder weather, and that irresistible desire to be together at the holidays Roughly 200,000 people a day are testing positive for the coronavirus here in the U.S., with deaths totaling 1 or 2,000 every day. And we're likely to have more than 300,000 fatalities in this country by the end of the year. The virus is simply everywhere. So here to help us understand how the pandemic ran out of control, despite all our advanced health research, and where we go from here, is none other than the director of the National Institutes of Health himself, Dr. Francis Collins. He is a physician and a geneticist by training. He led the Human Genome Project for a number of years and among other awards, he has received the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the National Medal of Science. And he was in the Bill Nye the Science Guy documentary, people, I'm just saying. Dr. Francis Collins, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Francis? Please call me Francis as long as I can call you Bill. Please, please. Uh, So where to begin? Uh, We have a pandemic. We have this astonishing number of people who are sick. We have astonishing number of people who are dying. And you guys, the National Institutes of Health, made predictions about what would happen after Thanksgiving. There'd be a wave on top of the wave. Has that proven to be true? Just let's start there so we're in a
1: very difficult place right now in the united states of america with the number of cases and the number of hospitalizations and sadly the number of daily deaths having reached new high levels ever since this got started back in january it's still a little early bill to actually be able to assess whether we're getting a bounce an unfortunate kind of bounce out of thanksgiving Because you won't really expect to see that for a couple of weeks, and we're not quite there, but I think most of us will be surprised. Frankly, things are going up so fast in many parts of the country, which include the coasts, both coasts, and the Sun Belt, that if you had a bounce on top of that, it would be pretty hard to tell because the curve (laughs) is so steep already.
0: Wow. Wow. Now, when you say both coasts and the Sun Belt, the the highest one's in the Midwest, right, in the Dakotas. You know, when you look at the Dakotas and
1: Montana and Utah, which were really in a terrible place uh, two or three weeks ago, they have managed to kind of get some control, at least in some parts of the Midwest, and they seem to have kind of plateaued. Whereas the coasts are not plateaued, uh, they're heading upward at a dizzying and alarming rate. So maybe some of the things that got implemented in the upper Midwest are starting to have an, an effect. And gosh, why is it that we have to wait until there is an absolutely disastrous crisis before we implement those mitigation strategies, which we know can work? We've learned that over and over again. We should be doing that across the country and every person and every household right now.
0: So when you say mitigation strategies, we're talking about wearing a mask. I'm talking about, some people call this a
1: mask. A face covering. I I would call it actually a life-saving
0: medical device. Let's call it what it is. I'm I'm talking to you through a life-saving medical device then. Check me out. You are
1: indeed, and I can hear you just fine. And, you know, if you get used to wearing this every time you go outside, it's not that big a deal. But somehow in our country, it has been morphed into something much bigger than that. It's an assault on your personal freedom. It's a political statement. It's a threat to your masculinity. I mean, just go down the list of ways in which people have resisted this. But it is a life-saving medical device. If you happen to be one of those people who's infected with SARS-CoV-2, and you might be right now, and you don't know it because you have no symptoms, this mask is your way to keep from killing people. And who amongst us doesn't want to protect our neighbors, our friends, our grandparents uh, from this kind of terrible outcome? This is how you do it. It is so straightforward. And yet it's gotten all tangled up in all of these misunderstandings and misinformation. And it really is a sad state when you look at where the United States has arrived
0: here in December of 2020. So how much of it do you think is based on fear? Here's what I mean. I wear a mask because I, I don't want to die. <laughs> Call me old. Don't want to die. But I think, is it possible that there's so many people so afraid of this thing that they're just setting it aside? Just like, I, I can't deal with it. Or maybe they're saying to themselves, well, if I go to one Thanksgiving dinner, I'll be okay. If I go to the grocery store without a mask once, I'll be all right. How much of that do you think is going on?
1: Uh, Probably quite a bit. I mean, you're the science guy. You know that we humans are supposed to be rational actors, but we often are not. Uh, We have ways of talking ourselves into other kinds of actions that aren't all that rational. Certainly, the idea of sort of marking yourself by wearing a mask uh, offends some people. It's sort of a sign of weakness. And certainly, we're all capable of saying, well, just this once. Maybe it won't matter. Darn it. I wanted to be with my family at Thanksgiving. Surely, if we just all get together for a little while and we're kind of careful, but of course it's really hard to be careful when you're sitting around a table you can't eat with your mask on. And if just one person at that table happens to be infected and doesn't know it, well, there you go. So yeah, we we have failed, I think, to do the kinds of things uh, that public health has been telling us for months that we needed to do. And now we're in a real pickle here. Somehow we hit the reset button here, now we're headed for two very, very dark months of January and February.
0: Man, oh man. So we're going to expect a similar spike. I fear so because, again, people want to get together. I
1: want to be with my family at Christmas. I haven't missed a Christmas with my daughter and grandkids in North Carolina in probably 20 years. But this year, I'm going to miss it. It's just not safe enough to do that. And I, I'm going to grieve about that, but we're going to have a nice Zoom call. And we're going to yeah. figure out a way to make the best of it. Because we are going to get through this. It's not like this is forever, but it is for a few more months. And unless we collectively agree that that's
0: important, it's going to get worse. So along that line, how do you manage the stress of all this, all this stuff going on? Every day people confront you and your uh, people that work for you like, uh, this is really bad. And then you all, guys like you say, yeah, it's really bad and it's going to get worse. Yes, it's going to get worse. How do you manage that? I'm here in my home office uh, working 90 hours
1: a week uh, to try to bring every kind of scientific solution forward as fast as we can for treatments, for diagnostics, and for vaccines. That's my way I try to manage it. But it is hard sometimes to think that maybe I made a mistake yesterday and we might have lost a day there and something that could have gone a little faster, and maybe that's actually going to affect somebody's life. It is a very stressful time for all of us working on this. The good news is science has really come together here in a way that's unprecedented, and the progress that has been achieved and the timetable that's made it possible is unprecedented. And I think we can all feel really good that science has been called upon and science has answered, and look where we are compared to where we were just a few months ago.
0: So along, so with that, all these there must have been infrastructure in place, and by that I mean corporations, people, medical professionals, hospitals, hospitals, all had an idea of how to produce a vaccine, right? Everybody had some scheme in mind. And somehow you all guys like you got the thing started. What did you do to make warp speed go so speedy?
1: Well, let nobody imagine that it just sort of got invented overnight. Everything you're seeing happen now in 2020 builds upon a foundation uh, of years, decades of research that got us to the point of being able to make a vaccine happen in less than a year. Traditionally, building a vaccine from scratch is a decade, if you're lucky. And now here we are within a few days of seeing approval, I believe, of two different vaccines less than a year after the first introduction of any information about this virus out of Wuhan, China. And what it is, Built
0: upon is some really cool new technology. Can I tell you about that? Uh, it's what you're a geneticist. I want to hear about this.
1: OK, uh, first, I got to uh, show you my pet rock here. Uh, so this is the this is the enemy. This is the guy we're trying to go after. This is this
0: coronavirus. For those of you listening, he's holding up a plastic model, a, a, a blue sphere with looks like popcorns and push pins poked into it. Thank you very much.
1: I appreciate that description. It's actually a 3D printed model, excuse me. But anyway,
0: it doesn't. Uh, no, no. So my tax dollars at work. That's what cool.
1: <laughs> You're seeing. No, it's, a,
0: it's about the size of a softball or grapefruit, yeah?
1: Yeah, right. And it's got these spiky things on the surface, which are literally called spike proteins. Those are the way in which this virus gets inside your cells. That spike binds to something, a receptor on the cell surface called ACE2. And when that linkage happens, zing, the virus just helps itself uh, to climbing into your cell and making lots of copies of itself and killing the cell and then moving on. So we want to do something to stop that. So vaccines are basically designed to try to tell your immune system to get ready. That virus is coming. Make antibodies now. You might need them later. And make antibodies against that spike protein because that's the thing that's most on the surface. If you could glom antibodies onto that, like, you know, chewing gum on that virus, you would be able to stop it from getting inside the cell. Now, what cells does it get inside, by the way? Initially, it gets inside the cells in your respiratory tracts, your nose, your trachea, your lungs. But actually, if you're really sick and it gets into your bloodstream, it can get to a lot of places in your brain, in your pancreas. Uh, lots of cells have uh, that same ACE2 receptor that the virus likes to utilize as its uh, means of getting in.
0: So this new, these new viruses don't work the way what I thought of traditional viruses work, where you introduce a disabled form of the virus. This is a whole new deal, right? Messenger, ribonucleic acid. Yeah, the old
1: way is you would basically grow up a lot of the virus and you would kill it. And you would inject that, hoping you had really killed it. And then the immune system would go, okay, I'm going to raise an antibody to those structures. But that's a little bit risky. It's more clean and elegant if you just give the immune system that spike protein to react to But how do you do that? The spike protein without being attached to the big ball. Right. So it's not the whole virus. It's just that spike protein, but that'll be enough to prime your immune system to make an antibody, which is going to protect you. But then how do you get your immune system to see the spike protein. Well, you could make purified spike protein. And in fact, there are two vaccines that are doing that. But what the messenger RNA approach does, which is really quick, is you basically look to see what's the coding for that protein that you would need in RNA in order to make those 510 amino acids that's represented in the spike protein. We knew that right away on January 10th because China published the genome sequence of this RNA virus. So you knew exactly what that sequence was.
0: Okay. Hang on a sec. So the the virus itself is RNA, ribonucleic acid, which is one side of DNA, one side of the double helix? Single
1: strand. That's right. Living inside this uh, particular virus is a single RNA genome that contains all of the coding that the virus needs to replicate itself, including coding for that spike protein. So how do you turn RNA in a vaccine? Because that's what we're doing into protein. Well, you inject it into muscle and it goes into the muscle cells and the muscle cells go, oh, look, this is RNA. We know what to do with this. We'll make a protein. And the RNA goes off to the ribosomes, uh, where translation happens, you know, where RNA gets translated into protein, and it makes the spike protein. And then the spike protein pops up there, and the immune system goes, ah, I know what that is. I'm going to make an antibody.
0: So that's why you shoot it into muscles. That's why we shoot vaccines into muscles. So the muscle cells produce a protein, a molecule that has a structure Uh, from the instructions that were in the RNA. So why hasn't this approach been taken with vaccines for centuries?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, we only knew about uh, messenger RNA uh, along about 1960. And then it's really hard to synthesize, and it's really finicky and fragile. So unless you package it up in something to keep it from degrading, messenger RNA is around for like a fraction of a second Any of us who work with RNA know that most of our experiments result in failure because the RNA has degraded. So what they had to do was to come up with a way to package it inside this lovely lipid envelope. Fat, fat envelope? Fat, yeah. Fat cells, Mm -hmm. fat, fat molecules around that uh, RNA. And then it's stable, sort of. You may have heard that Pfizer's vaccine has to be stored at a ridiculously low temperature, like minus 80 degrees centigrade. Well, that's part of the problem because RNA is fragile. And if it starts to warm up, it might not be there anymore. So that's one of the downsides. But it's getting better. The Moderna vaccine, which is also messenger RNA, can actually be kept in a regular refrigerator uh, for a week. What's the difference? Better way. It's a difference in the, the lipids that surround it and just how good they are at protecting it at regular temperatures as opposed to ridiculously low temperatures.
0: All right, let me get to a couple other a couple other questions that everybody wants to know. Uh one of them is what do you do? You say you're you're working 90 hours a week. You're worried about making a mistake. What is your day like as the head of the NIH? Well, no day is like any other. Um, I usually get up at 4.30 in the morning
1: because that's when I know there's going to be some protected time where probably not a lot of crises will be happening and I'll be able to kind of plan the day and deal with the things I didn't get done the day before. Um, I'm a person of faith, so I spend a little bit of time in that early morning time trying to get reconnected with my spiritual life. And um, three days out of the week, I'm doing a workout down in the basement uh, with um, Olympic weights and some other things to try to keep from turning into a total couch potato while I'm trapped here in my house. And by 7.30, uh, the Zoom calls begin. And sometimes it's with scientists who are wrestling with a problem with the vaccine. Sometimes it's with the uh, department secretary, uh, Secretary Azar wrestling with something that we have to do together. Uh, today, I was in the White House task force meeting with the vice president trying to figure out other, other things we should be doing that we haven't thought of. Um, I'm working on diagnostics. I have a whole team that's trying to figure out how we can start testing for the COVID-19 in homes instead of having you have to go to a laboratory, a big push right there. It's all over the place, uh, Bill, no day like any other, but it's mostly about science. And it's exi- exciting and technologically interesting, and it's exhausting sometimes.
0: So speaking of your spiritual side, just want to touch on this. You are a a solid Christian, and you are a strong believer or a lover of evolution. Um, I think evolution is just fundamental to
1: our understanding of biology. As uh, Dobjansky once said, nothing in biology makes sense except in the context of evolution. It's so obviously tying all living things
0: together. We'll be back right after this. When you visit California, childhood rules. If you don't remember how awesome childhood is, just ask yourself. What would kids do? Dance to a giant organ played by ocean waves? Yep. Camp in floating tree houses hundreds of feet off the ground? Check. Jump in a big tub of mud on purpose? Call it rejuvenation. We don't care. Just pack your fun pants and let childhood rule your family vacation. Discover why California is the ultimate playground at VisitCalifornia.com. So with all this, let's say we get these vaccines working. Are you have any concerns about it? Do you, are you worried about it? Well,
1: of course, I have some concerns about whether it's something we've missed. We've only known about this virus uh, for 11 months. Uh, we have built these vaccines in record time. They have been tested in the most stringent way you can imagine. Each of these being tested in at least 30,000 people to look to see whether they protect you against the vac- the virus, and it looks like 95% effectiveness. And they've also been looked at for safety to make sure that there wasn't some other surprising thing that happened to people who got the vaccines. Yeah, some of them got a sore arm and maybe had a little fever for a day, but nothing more serious. But you can't ever know for sure. There's not some longer term consequence that hasn't turned up yet because we haven't had the time or maybe there might be one person in a million who had a funny result from this. That's always possible. So we can't rule those things out. But when you look at benefits and risks, which is what we're always doing in medicine, and you see 280,000 people having died and all of this terrible crisis that's happening across our country, this seems like a pretty good deal. So I'm really glad that as soon as a couple of weeks from now, People are going to start getting immunized with these vaccines if the FDA approves them, which we think they will. This will go first to those high-risk individuals, people in nursing homes, healthcare providers. And over the course of several months, it will eventually be possible for all of us uh, to have access. And I think that's the way we're going to put this in the rearview mirror. And that's what everybody wants to do.
0: Oh, man. So we get a lot of email. And uh, uh, I've asked a couple of questions. But here's one from Jamie if a person receives adequate dosages of the vaccine, will they still be able to transmit the virus? That's one of the big questions, right? Jamie, that is a fantastic question. And I don't know the
1: answer. We do know the vaccines prevent you from getting sick. You don't show up with symptoms. But is it possible even vaccinated people are still getting the virus and could still be spreading it even though they feel fine? We need to know the answer to that, and a trial to assess that is being designed right now. The betting odds are, if the vaccine works to prevent illness, it probably prevents contagion, but
0: we don't know that for sure. What a thing to not know. Wow. So uh, here's an email from Josh. Why are guests on our show, (laughs) including Actual Gwande, we had him on the other day, why do people believe that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work? (laughs) Because he's this guy, Josh, has been reading peer-reviewed articles, concluding that it is extremely effective. Well, I don't know which
1: peer-reviewed articles those are. How, How do we decide if something doesn't work? Well, first, you test it in every kind of setting. You test it on people as a prevention. We've done that. You test it on people who just recently tested positive for the virus to see if it keeps them from getting sick. We've done that. You test it on people in the hospital who are sort of sick, Kind of really sick or really, really sick. And we've done all of those. And in every instance, it has failed to change the outcome if you're doing this properly in a randomized controlled trial. So I wanted it to work too. I mean, we need therapeutics, but when you look at the
0: evidence, we ought to move on. This one has been a fail. There you go, Josh. Now, speaking of therapeutics, there's a federal employee, uh, President Trump, who had some extraordinary treatment. Right. What was it that he went through that worked? So that was a
1: monoclonal antibody cocktail uh, from a company called Regeneron, which has subsequently been approved by the FDA for emergency use, although at that time it was not yet approved. So it was done under what's called compassionate use. So how does this work? Basically, we look at people who have survived COVID-19. Now, they survived because their immune system kicked in and they made antibodies that basically knocked the virus out. So could we actually identify their highly successful antibodies and turn those into a pharmaceutical product? You bet. That's what a monoclonal antibody is. It's a single antibody that we know is really good at binding to the virus. Regeneron developed a product like that. Lilly developed one as well. It looks like they do help people if you get them early in the course of the disease, within the first 72 hours after their
0: symptoms Wow. Start. After the symptoms start let me ask you, you might go three days without symptoms. Then in the next three days, that's when you got to hit it with the monoclonal. It seems that if you wait longer than that, it kind of doesn't work so well. And I kind of see
1: why that would be because if you wait much longer than that. Your own immune system by then has started to make your own antibodies. Adding another antibody from somebody else maybe isn't going to change things. Is that p- related to the cytokine storm? The cytokine storm is what we think characterizes the people who get sicker and sicker and sicker. And maybe they've been sick for 10 days and they're now in the ICU and they have a really bad pneumonia. If you look at those people carefully, it doesn't look like the virus is around very much anymore. It's the immune system that's overreactive and is doing more harm than good. And that's the cytokine storm. Cytokines are these molecules that just whip everything into a frenzy. And the treatment there seems to be not to go after the virus so much as to try to block the immune system from its overreactive state with things like uh, dexamethasone, which has been in that situation to help survivors.
0: Steroid kind of things, anti-inflammatories. All right. So here's something I've wondered about. I've wondered about since I first learned about the Spanish flu. Seriously. uh, It seems to me that the reason you and I and all the listeners are here able to to listen to this is our ancestors lived through that pandemic, the Spanish flu of 1918. There must have been a genetic component, what I described, the hand you're dealt, that enabled some people to live through this and some people not, right? Is there, is, are you guys working on a predictive thing where you get somebody's DNA and decide if that's going to do the job against this virus or not?
1: Yeah, Bill, you're absolutely right, because there's clearly a lot of variation in people's response to this. Already, there are a couple of publications that were pretty interesting. First, they looked at people who got really severe disease who were young, and you didn't think they should have. And it turns out most of those people had something wrong with their interferon response. Interferon is a molecule that helps you with an RNA virus. And these people either had a genetic mutation in that pathway, where they had made their own autoantibodies against interferon, like an autoimmune disease. And they ended up very sick because interferon did not come to the rescue when they first got infected. Looking at the other side, people who end up actually being better at surviving this, uh, what, what is the resilience part of this? It looks like blood type, oddly enough, seems to be a protection. If you're type O, you're less likely to get really sick from COVID-19. I'm type O, I'm glad to hear that. And type A people are more susceptible uh, to getting the severe port of disease. Now, here's a really cool one, Bill. There's also a stretch of DNA on chromosome three uh, that turns out to be a predictor of whether you're gonna get really severely sick or not. And as they searched through it, they figured out this stretch of DNA that confers a higher risk is one of those pieces of DNA that we got from, wait for it, Neanderthals. Oh, my
0: good friends. So what do, can we test for that?
1: Um, you could. You know, let's be clear. I'm, I don't want to overstate this. The effect these genetic risks have in terms of your likelihood of getting really sick, it's pretty small. You can see it if you study hundreds of people. But for the individual, eh, it's a very small kind of quantitative consequence that you probably don't need to test for just make sure the person gets good care. But if you look at populations, you can see there's something going on.
0: So along that line, what can we do better in the future? In other words, uh, are there ways to evaluate people, us in the population, about who's going to be susceptible to have sort of uh, to anticipate problems and uh, and and help people who might be worse off when they get sick to be ready for it. Well,
1: With this virus, it's going to be coming down to who's got a good antibody response and who has maintained it. Uh, We think that when you've been naturally infected with COVID 19, you probably won't get reinfected because you're immune, at least for a while. We think the vaccine should therefore also last for a while, but we don't know how long. So if we have another outbreak uh, in a year, uh, the best predictor about who's going to be really at risk is the people whose antibodies have kind of faded away by then.
0: Why would they fade away? Doggone it. Why would they fade away, man? Doctor? Francis? No, I don't
1: know the answer to that. I know that there are some infectious diseases where your antibodies are good for life, like measles. And there's lots of other infectious diseases where there's a limit. I mean, when you step on a rusty nail and somebody says, oh, when was your last booster shot? That's telling you that your tetanus immunization is not for life. It kind of wears out. We don't know. It is this SARS-CoV-2 virus going to be like tetanus or going to be like measles or, worst of all, is it going to be like influenza and you've got to get a shot every year? We
0: don't know. Well, that's because the flu is mutating, right? Um, uh, astronaut Leland Melvin said, just watch out for COVID-2021, you know, when it's mutated. And it is mutating. It's an RNA virus. Mistakes
1: get made when it gets copied. We've already seen a couple of examples where a new version of the virus emerged and replicated rapidly, indicating it had some advantage. So far, none of those changes seem to have affected the likelihood the vaccine is going to work, but we need to watch for that. So we have a whole program doing surveillance,
0: and well, we should. So when you say a whole program doing surveillance... I have wondered, as a taxpayer and voter, what is the relationship between the Federal Drug Administration, the FDA, the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, and your organization, the National Institutes of Health? NIH, CDC, FDA, who does what?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And we are all part of the same department, Health and Human Services. We work extremely closely together in every situation. But with COVID-19, we've been joined at the hip. So I probably have at least one encounter every day with my counterparts, uh, the head of the CDC, Bob Redfield, and the head of the FDA, Steve Hahn, uh, because we are doing all these things. It's the closest kind of collaborators you can imagine. And sometimes it is a little unclear. Wait a minute, who's got this ball and whose swim lane is that one in? And occasionally we stumble over each other, but then we sort it out. Yeah, this is a time where it's got to be all hands on deck and government has got to work together. And that's what warp speed is about.
0: So are you all going to keep your jobs uh, come January 21st? That's kind of up to the
1: president-elect when uh, the transition occurs. Um, uh, He's already announced an appointment of a new CDC director. Uh, So that's Rochelle Walonsky, who I know pretty well, who's going to be fantastic in that role. Um, I don't know about myself. I'm waiting to uh, have some information. I've been NIH director, though, for 11 years, which is the longest anybody has ever stayed in this role, having been appointed by Obama and then carried over by Trump. So it might be time for somebody else to take the reins and uh, see where we
0: can go. If you were in charge, though, would you increase the budget to these three uh, government entities? If you, I always like to ask people, if you were king of the forest, what could we do better going forward?
1: If you look at what's happened with COVID 19 in terms of the terrible damage that it's done to people's lives, uh, to the economy, the investments we're making in medical research and public health and the FDA regulatory effort is, if anything, uh, seems like a small price to pay to try to get through this. So I would say without breaking the budget, which I'm not allowed to do because I'm a federal employee in the executive branch, I would say that it's a pretty darn good investment so far, and we could probably do even more if we were not always kind of scrimping and looking under the couch cushions to try to find some quarters uh, to do that next research
0: project that we'd really like to do. What's your, what next research project would you like to do? Oh, goodness. I mean, we, we, we need to learn from this. We need to set up
1: a long-term plan for the next generation of vaccine developments. 11 months has been great. Maybe we could do it in six if we took this to the next level. Uh, maybe we could make sure that we maintain a manufacturing capacity that could design and develop and manufacture vaccines at the drop of a hat, because that took a while to set up. All of those lessons we've learned that could be applied are going to require resources. And I think this ought to be a learning experience uh, to force us to think more carefully about how we're investing our resources in this
0: country and in the world. You know, I work in space exploration. You know, these guys put these guys went on went to the moon for about two and a half or three. Interstate highway systems. In other words, if you spend that kind of money, you can get something done. The advantages is, of course, you get all this remarkable technology. There's a strong argument that the internet wouldn't exist without the space program. But with that said, you know, we're dealing with the vaccine, we're dealing with wearing a mask, we're dealing with staying inside, we're dealing with preventive social distancing, physical distancing. Okay. What can we do about preventing diseases in the future?
1: Well, before we leave your analogy to space, I do want to say, Bill, I hope there's an analogy here as well. Sputnik uh, was a wake-up call for American science in 1957 or 58, whenever it was, mm-hmm. that you know, 12 years later, July 20th, 1969, uh, we had a man on the moon because it motivated uh, and inspired a whole generation of American leaders and American young people to say, we can do this and let's, let's focus on science. Well, maybe this is a Sputnik kind of moment where the whole world, especially our country, has seen just what a challenge life science things can be like a virus and how science can rise to that task and get us through it. So I'm hoping there are some young folks who are toying between you know, going into business or going to law school or going into science. They'll decide that science is the place to be. Because this is going to be an amazing few decades of research advances across the board, not just in infectious diseases. I mean, look at the brain. We're going to sort out how that works. All of those chronic diseases that vex us. And yes, prevention, coming back to your question, we're going to figure out how to keep people healthy and not just focus on what to do once they get sick.
0: So, you know, I am of a certain age and I was inspired by the space program and I became a mechanical engineer because uh, rockets are cool bicycles are amazing. Airplanes are cool. And I tell the young people, if I were coming along today, it wouldn't be space, which is great. And I'm kooky for it. I work in it. But the stuff that's going on in genetics is amazing now. Is there any role that CRISPR, this clustered regularly interspace short palindromic repeats has going forward with the vaccine, the messier RNA and all that?
1: Absolutely, and I know you've recently had Jennifer Doudna as a guest, and she is a wonderful example of the kind of amazing innovation that's now possible in life science. And this gene editing efforts uh, is transformative for being able to understand how the genome works, and already transformative for treatments of things like sickle cell disease, which are starting to get not just treated but cured but by using this gene editing apparatus, which is just phenomenal. I didn't think I would ever see that in my lifetime. I will say, by the way, one of the coolest diagnostic tests that we've been supporting at NIH to be able to detect the SARS-CoV-2 virus uses CRISPR as its technology. It's pretty good for diagnostics, too. So it's just one example of how this field of life science is just full of new and exciting potential technologies that have applications that are going to open our eyes uh, to vast numbers of ways in which we can understand how life works and how disease happens. How cool it is to be part of that.
0: Oh, man. Well said. Well said. Now, everybody, it's December of 2020. The winter's coming. We want to have the holidays together. Just as the saying goes, don't do it. And for those of you who are, for some reason, not professional tightrope walkers, the tightrope walkers point out to us that it's those last three steps. You've taken a tightrope across the Grand Canyon, very carefully walking step after step. But if you don't concentrate on those last three steps to the platform, you're going to fall. And falling into the Grand Canyon is something you only get to do once. So in <laughs> these next three months, everybody, we've got to keep it together. We've got to be especially disciplined these next three months dr collins francis thank you so much for taking the time sir this has just been fantastic dr francis collins has been our guest today he's a physician geneticist and director of the national institutes of health and i'm bill nye my friends as you may know and this is a pandemic as i certainly hope you know and we are all in this together and so more than ever science rules The Science Rules Coronavirus Edition is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is Louise Fleming, who also mixed this episode. Josephine Martirano is our executive producer. Special thanks to Casey Holford. And remember, at Stitcher and all around the world, Science Rules. Dr. Collins, Francis, thank you so much for taking the time. Is there one more thing you want to tell people? Oh, Well, it's been great
1: talking with you. And again, I hope people do stick with it here. We got to double down on all those ways to stay safe. But meanwhile, you are so right. Science rules. And in this case, science is coming to the rescue. Hope is on the way.
0: So wear your extraordinary scientifically engineered uh, protective device, aka face covering. Maintain social distance uh, when you do see people do your best to be outside. If you like science rules... Might I recommend nudging your loved ones to gift some of our merchandise? Just tell them to go to podswag.com/slash science rules. They still have a couple of days to get orders in to arrive before December 25th, also known as Isaac Newton's birthday. Three more things, everybody. Wear a mask, get tested, and for the love of science, avoid indoor gatherings. Thank you again, Francis. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bill.